We're continuing with our Summer in the Psalms, uh, Seasons of the Soul, this morning with Psalm 27. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Thanks, Cindy. I'm David, pastor here at Current. Welcome. If you're here for the, one of the first few times, especially want to say welcome to you. Uh, just to get into it, uh, it could be said that the Bible is about suffering as much as it, is, as it is about anything. I mean, the whole Bible really covers the topic of suffering uh, straight on. The book of Genesis, of course, opens uh, with the beautiful account of creation and our relationship with God, um, but it doesn't take only but a few pages, depending on the font size of your Bible, before suffering enters into the world because of our choices, because of our rebellion is how, how the Bible describes it. And then the rest of the book of Genesis is about the very first few followers of God suffering in many respects. The book of Exodus starts with suffering. The people of God had been in, in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. They are delivered by God, yes, but because of choices that they make or choices that they are unable to make, again, they go through suffering as they are tried and tested in the desert. The book of Job is all about the topic of suffering, just outright. Ecclesiastes and, and much of the wisdom literature talks about how life feels meaningless because of suffering. Uh, you have all of the prophets, uh, all these prophets who wrote so many of these books are all talking about and dealing with suffering in, in many respects over and over again. And then, of course, towering above it all, you have the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is known as the man of sorrows. Uh, suffering is a topic, a topic that we uh, aren't credibly comfortable with in our society today, uh, wouldn't you say? And I think for a large part, we're inadequately prepared to cope with it. Uh, you know, if you're, you're going after the American dream of a culture that we have and you somehow fail, it, uh, it, it, it's as if you some, have somehow failed if you suffer. Um, yet this is so far from the truth. Suffering is unavoidable, it's inevitable, and none of us are immune to it. Um, no amount of, of money, power, and planning can prevent the illnesses that will befall us. 
the financial disaster that we might, re- we, we might face, uh, relationship betrayals, and a host of any number of things that will enter into our lives. We are all incredibly vulnerable, and we are all subject to forces beyond our power to manage. And I think at some level, deep down, we all intuitively understand this, that there is, it, you know, at the end of the day, it is impossible to face suffering uh, ultimately on our resources alone. We need outside help. We need outside support. The book of Psalms, as we have talked about, and as we're making our way through uh, the book of Psalms, just kind of picking, cherry-picking as we go through uh, this summer, um, is a book about prayers to help us face any and all types of suffering. Any and all types of suffering. The Psalms are our food for the soul. That's our series, Seasons of the Soul. So just as there are different seasons of the year, there are different seasons of the soul. There are seasons where it feels like there's, there's just nothing but joy, hope, laughter, happiness, but there's also invariably seasons of suffering. And if you've been here, you know that I've quoted that there's about 40% of the Psalms dedicated exclusively to suffering, to hardship, to times where it's hard. Psalms of lament, the Bible call it, scholars call it. Well, today, we're looking at a psalm here. The ancient king David and, and, and psalmist uh, breaks it down for us. He's a guy who wrote so many of the psalms, and he, he, he deals with a lot of suffering over the course of his life and in the psalms, and we, we've been looking at some of those already. But what's incredibly helpful about the psalm that we're looking at today, Psalm 27, is David says this. He's like, if you boil it down to one thing, if you're just going to have one thing, one thing alone, that if you have this, you're going to be able to not only survive suffering, you can thrive through it, and even on the other end, triumph and be exalted through it, you need to have this one thing. He boils it down to just one thing. What is this, and how do we get it is what we're going to, we're going to dive into today. But first, let me pray, and then, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Father, uh, today as we, as we look at this heavier topic of suffering, uh, for many in this room, uh, this is not an academic thing. This is not a theoretical thing, uh, but this is, uh, this is deeply personal. Um, whether uh, they're facing suffering right now personally or there's a loved one in their life who's facing suffering, Lord, would you, would you comfort us today? Would you minister to us today? And would you touch each of us with your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before considering what this one thing is that, you, that, that David says, if we've got this, boy, we can, we can face any, any suffering, uh, the psalmist, he, he first starts out with some helpful perspective. Okay, verses 2 and then sprinkled throughout the, the psalm itself. This ancient king, David, writes, when the wicked advance against me to devour me, which when I first read, I was like, man, that's kind of like lofty language. Is that kind of hyperbole? Um, but then I looked into it more, and the, the word devour there means literally to eat the flesh of which, again, it sounds kind of like hyperbole, but if you know the story of David, you know the story of David and Goliath, and in that story, the giant, Goliath, says to David, I'm not only going to kill you, but after I kill you, I'm going to let birds and the wild beasts feast on your flesh, on your flesh devour you. This is, no, this is no hyperbole. This is what David faces. Verse 3, though an army besiege me. Verse 10, though my, my father and mother forsake me. Verse 12, false witnesses rise up against me. And then verse 5, kind of higher level, in the day of trouble. It's worth taking in, as we get into this psalm, that this ancient king was dealing with suffering of the life and death variety. 
Uh, I was uh, really interested in, in military history, actually I still am, and in college I kind of looked into a lot of these ancient kings just to understand what would happen, uh, how, how it kind of worked, and, and, and I was struck with how far removed we are from those times today. Uh, so basically from the ancient times, really through the, the Dark Ages, and this was especially the case in Europe, that whenever the seasons changed, you know, whenever it became springtime, you know, flowers blooming, uh, sir, uh, uh, birds chirping in the sky, that was the time for war. Because, you know, the, the snow melted, the, the mud dried up, and our war machines could get moving, and our, and our troops could not get, get hindered by that. And so you were out there expanding your land or defending your land. Life and death. I was looking at, I was reading some of the scholars uh, to get prepared for this, and they were like, we're not entirely sure at what point in David's life that this, that this was written. Was it when he was running away from one of the other kings? Was it when he was dealing with this, this like, coup? Or it, it doesn't matter when he was, what, what time of, of, of reference this was for King David on, on at least one level, because at any time in David's life, he was dealing with life and death circumstances, life and death type suffering, which is helpful for us, I believe, because much of our suffering, it seems to me, can often feel a little bit more intense than what it was when we look in hindsight back at it. Boy, it wasn't as intense as I thought it was, not having that job when I wanted it, not getting those interviews, or that relationship that, yes, is, is, is really hard, but... Or if you are here today, and it really is more towards the life and death variety for you or someone in your life. Here's what we get, this helpful perspective. This is a guy who can speak into our lives. This is somebody we can lean into and say, okay, I'm I'm, I'm willing to listen. I want to hear what you have to say. And what he's saying here is if you are suffering or if you face suffering, if there's one thing that you're going to hold on to or, 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 or get, go after this, get this. Of course, he talks about it in verse 4. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. And then verse 8, along a similar vein, my heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. So this one thing we must go after is we need to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, David says. So we need to seek his face. Well, what does that mean? First, let's consider what it doesn't mean, okay? David does not say, hey, there's the one thing I need in this, in this hardship, in this situation of suffering. The one thing I need, God, from you is to deliver me. God, deliver me. Or God, provide for me. If you just provide for me, that one thing, and then I'd be okay. He doesn't do that. It's worth mentioning, though, that David, all throughout the Psalms, prays those prayers, He's facing any number of scary things throughout his whole life, and all throughout the Psalms, in those scary situations, he's praying, God, deliver me. Look it up. He's, deliver me, O Lord. Provide for me. Would you? Those are good prayers. There's nothing wrong with those prayers. God wants us to seek him, ask for provision, ask for him to take care of us. But if there's one thing, David says, if there's one thing that we need when it comes to seeking, in the time of hardship, That'll help us not only survive but thrive. It's to gaze upon God's beauty and to seek His face. What does that mean? Seek His face. To seek His face means to be in the presence of, right? It means to be, to seek someone's face, it means to have a two-way relationship. It means to be exposed to the other person. It's like if you're going out on a date with somebody for the first time, that's like equal parts fun and exciting as well as terrifying, intimidating, and nerve-wracking. 
Uh, Cindy likes to give me a hard time. She, we, we can't figure out, we, we, we haven't agreed upon which of our many first dates was actually our first date. Um, and this speaks more to like my issues uh, back then. I, I was very uncertain and unclear. And it was, it, it's, if you want a lesson on what not to do, talk to us or talk to me and I'll, I'll share uh, when it comes to dating and all that sort of thing. But anyways, we had all these lists of different dates. Was it, was it, was it when we went and played tennis that one time? Was it when, when I took her out to Slurpee? I was really... <laughs> I was really reaching down deep in my pockets for that one. Uh, to me, the, the, our first date, at least the, the, you know, that I consider our first date, was when we had Thai food uh, in the inner sunset up in San Francisco, which is where she lived at the time. And, uh, and we, boy, we were face-to-face on that one. Even just retelling, I was like, you know, it's, it's, it's fun, it's exciting, it's a little scary, it's a little... But there's something powerful there. There's something intimate there. There's something... Uh, that David is talking about here. And what he's saying is when we seek God's face, we'll see beauty gazing back. When we seek God's face, we'll see beauty gazing back. There's this guy in the New Testament, that is the part of the Bible that tracks Jesus' life and, and afterwards, uh, uh, by, the, by the name of Zacchaeus, who came face to face with the beauty of the Son of God, and it completely changed his life. Uh, Zacchaeus, if you want to follow along, I'm not going to really have it up on the screen. This is Luke 19. Uh, Luke 19, and uh, Zacchaeus, we're told, was a chief tax collector, which, let me just say that just straight out. He, that just meant he was just uh, public enemy number one. Everybody despised him, loathed him, hated him because he was working with the Roman uh, government to take taxes from his own people, and whatever he could take in addition to the number that the Roman government expected him to get, he would take for himself. So people saw him as a traitor and all that sort of stuff. Uh, he had no friends. Okay. One day, Jesus was walking through his town, and Zacchaeus wanted to go out and see him. But because he was short, uh, he could not see over the crowd, we're told. And so what he did was he, he climbed up a sycamore tree. And when he got up to the sycamore tree, he came face to face and gazed into the beauty of Jesus. Jesus stopped underneath that tree and said to him these words, Zacchaeus, come down. I must come to your house today. And it was those words that completely changed Zacchaeus' life. It wasn't, we don't know how much time elapsed from the, until he went to their house and all that sort of thing. No other words are really recorded. But the next few verses, in the next few verses, we see Zacchaeus standing up in his home in front of the whole party that is there saying, you know what, if I have cheated anybody out of their money, I'm going to repay them fourfold and I'm going to sell half of my possessions and give it to the poor. That's some life change all because of that moment in the tree when he sought out Jesus and saw beauty gazing back at him. What beauty was there? What happened that Zacchaeus would have such an utter life change? The words, Zacchaeus, come down. I must come over your house today. Jesus knowing him by name, which meant he knew that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, which, knew, which he knew meant that Zacchaeus was a crook, And yet he said, I must come to your house today. Zacchaeus was floored by that beauty. If you haven't seen the documentary, uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor? You've got to go see it, Mr. Rogers. It's really good. We saw it this last week. Um, It's a really powerful uh, documentary kind of uh, following the life of Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers, if if you've watched that show growing up or or whatever. Um, But a recurring theme throughout this documentary is all these interviewees are 
are asked about his life, his wife, his friends, his coworkers, and uh, a recurring theme is they all said, boy, Mr. Rogers was radical for his time, which is kind of interesting. Think of like Mr. Rogers as a radical figure, but that's what they kept saying. Like that was the theme of the, he was radical in his message. How so? Well, in a time when kids programming was almost exclusively violent or consumeristic, his message was pure. His message was, kids, you are loved for who you are. And you are capable of loving. That was it. That was his message. You are lovable and you are capable of loving. Radical. Of course, uh, he uh, was an ordained minister uh, uh, in the Presbyterian Church. He's, he, and his life verse, it probably doesn't surprise you, is one that Jesus quoted as one of the most important commandments. Love your neighbor as yourself. Um, there's beauty there. But it's not so much radical. He just found a radically new expression. What we see in Mr. Rogers' life, even as he was telling us through this documentary, is that it is God's beauty, his radical love, that we are loved. Now, was Jesus okay with with Zacchaeus being a crook? No. If you read anything about Jesus, he had a lot to say about, don't do those sorts of things. That doesn't help others. Was Mr. Rogers in saying you are loved for who you are? And you mean you go and do anything, kids? No. If you've watched Mr. Rogers' You show, you know, it's all about morality. Your kids are things you should do and shouldn't do and all that sort of thing. But the essential message was you are loved and accepted for who you are. And that message is from God. And what David is saying is when we, here's the wording he says, one thing I ask, one thing I seek to gaze upon God's beauty. God has to reveal his beauty to us. It's his beauty to reveal. And by the way, Zacchaeus' story illustrates that for us. At the very end, after this life transformation, after Zacchaeus got up there and was just like, hey, I'm selling half my possessions, giving to the poor, Jesus said these words, Today salvation has come into this household, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Wait a minute. Was it Zacchaeus who was seeking or Jesus who was seeking? Was Was it Zacchaeus who sought out Jesus in the tree? To gaze upon his beauty? Or was it ultimately Jesus who was seeking out Zacchaeus? Jesus tells us it was ultimately Jesus himself seeking out Zacchaeus. And that's what David is saying is one thing I ask God, I'm, I'm coming to you. It's a two-way relationship that God is just sitting here and waiting to just lavish on us. Um, but we have to take that first heart step of saying with an open heart, Lord, will you have me? Um, if we gaze, we'll see that God's gaze, his beauty is gazing back. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, the, the Far Side type cartoon. I look for it. Um, it's, uh, I can't find it in digital. I must have seen it in print sometime. Um, but it's this picture of this little dude uh, looking into what seems like a telescope off into the cosmos. And what on the other end, he sees you know, God staring at him. Right? So there's this little dude, and God's staring at him through this, what seems like a telescope. But then as, and the illustrator does a great job, at least I followed this train of, 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 of observation, you realize that, wait a minute, that's not a telescope. Whoa, it's a microscope. And I think that's what kind of what, we're, what we see here is that we seek, but really God is just waiting to lavish and take us in. So the question then becomes, how can you gaze at God's beauty? What would that look like to gaze at God's beauty. I've read that gazing is not a one-time glimpse, but a steady, sustained focus. It is not petitionary prayer, but praising, admiring, and enjoying God just for who He is. I read it this way. It's like a beautiful landscape. You don't just look at a a landscape and say, oh, you know, that's nice, and I'm going to use this nice, you know, 
gaze for another reason. No, it's deeply satisfying in itself as we gaze, as we take in the beauty of, of nature as example. What God desires most from us is that we, and what we ought to desire most is a relationship uh, with Him. So what step would you need to take to gaze? Or to think about it a little bit more fun, what, what sycamore tree would you need to climb up uh, to open yourself up to relationship that, that God is wanting to have with you, to go deeper with you, one that He's waiting, eager, eagerly waiting on you for? Uh, maybe it's trying to figure out God altogether. You're here, and you uh, don't identify as a follower of God's, follower of Jesus. Maybe it's praying with an open heart, God, if you're there, would you show yourself to me? I'll tell you this, it's one thing to just pray that. It's another thing to pray that with an open heart. God, would you reveal yourself to me? I have a, a, a friend, uh, that had, uh, neighbors of, of ours for a few years, um, who I had, had the opportunity to just get into a lot of spiritual conversations with. He knew I was Christian, all that sort of thing. And we talked about Jesus and any number of times, and it was always just kind of okay. Um, but I remember at one point, he put his faith in Jesus a number of years, uh, a couple of years down, down in, into this relationship, not because of anything I said or did or argued or whatever, but he said this. He said, you know, I realized, my goodness, I can't help. I, I see so clearly now that God's been there all along. And he looked at all these, he kind of listed off all these different things in his life. He's like, I don't see that. It's a coincidence now. I used to, but now I see that it's been God there all along. So many of our stories are that way. Uh, a number of people in my family I could list off for you are that way. A uh, number of you here in this room, um, that's the, how the Bible often says it works. God's chasing you. He just wants you to open your eyes to Him, receive Him with an open heart. Uh, for others, perhaps you have a relationship with Him, and you have found His beauty. Um, I'm guessing it means carving out some time to gaze. Uh, we live in the Silicon Valley, surprise, surprise, where you know, things are so fast and furious, um, Maybe there hasn't been time to gaze so much as you used to, or maybe you never had at all, but maybe as much time as you used to before you had this job, or before, before you got into this relationship, or before you had this number of kids. Um, can you find time to gaze, whether that's reading his scriptures, to learn more about him, to, to see his beauty there, carving out time to pray? And not just praying, God, deliver me, although he wants to hear those prayers. God, provide for me, although he wants to hear those prayers. But just to kind of sit and rest, to be still, as we just sang about, in his presence and just receive from him what he might have for us. Um, or maybe gazing is something altogether different. Maybe you're going through hard times and it'd be you know, bringing someone else into that and walking alongside you with that. God gives us fellow believers, fellow Christians to walk through uh, times that are hard, and, and sometimes it can be really hard. It can be really vulnerable to let, your, let others into that. Um, but there's often beauty to be seen there, to be experienced. Uh, doing these things can, it can be like climbing a, a sycamore tree, can, you know, the this, this seeking. Um, it can feel awkward. It can feel exposing, maybe even a little undignified. But when we seek to gaze on God, we'll be amazed at the beauty we encounter on the other side. Here's the promise that immediately follows uh, he's saying in verse 4, one thing I ask of the Lord, this, this only do I seek, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, to seek his face. Verse 5, for in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me upon a high rock. Then my head will be exalted. There's the promise. If we seek him for who he is, God will take care of us. Now, does that mean that our life will become easy and comfortable? that we'll get that job or whatever it might be. It's not saying that. 
It's not saying that. It's saying that he will help us weather whatever we face, whatever storm we're facing. The, the, the load will lighten, the weight will come off. Um, we need to seek God and his beauty, and, he, and, his, and his beauty will be made known to us. Uh, last thought, I'm just going to do two thoughts here today. Um, what we see here is it's not enough just to gaze on his beauty just anywhere. Uh, verse 4 ends with showing us that to experience God's beauty most fully, we need to seek him in his temple. Do you see that? One thing I seek, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, where? In his temple. Now, he's not saying a physical location. He's not saying, hey, you need to go over to the, the, the physical temple and, okay, seek him there and then you're good. He's not saying, you know, this means physically the church or wherever the church is meeting. Hey, if you come here, you'll see his. That's not what it's saying. It's not a physical. What King David is doing is he's pointing ahead, even as he doesn't fully understand it, to the gospel in Jesus Christ. Uh, the thing that we, we understand from the temple is that uh, in the Old Testament times, that is, the, that is before the life and ministry of Jesus, every year in the temple, the high priest would take, uh, would take blood into the Holy of Holies, which is where it was said for, that God's Spirit dwelt, he was, he was, and he would sprinkle blood from an animal onto the Ark of the Covenant, this beautifully, masterfully made uh, altar. It was pure gold, but over the centuries, the high priest would go in there and sprinkle blood once a year and then head out, um, which, means, which means over the generations, this beautiful, ornate altar became disgusting, became blackened, became caked over with blood. The most beautiful of objects became dirty, uh, became ugly. And this is a picture ultimately of what Jesus came to do for us. Philippians 2 talks about how Jesus is the most beautiful of everyone, the fairest of all. You know, I watched Mr. Rogers, and, you know, it was really a documentary of a beautiful life lived. And I was reading before these op-ed pieces talking about how people are crying leaving the theater. And sure enough, when people came out of the, the theater, our theater, we were watching people sniffling and all that sort of thing. Why? Because there's something moving about a beautiful life like that. But you know what I thought the, the documentary did a really good job of capturing? Is that Mr. Rogers' beautiful life as he lived was also far from perfect. I mean, he had any number of flaws. He had, he had some prejudices that, that kind of came out, that sort of thing. Look, he is very beautiful, but he's imperfect, and there were sides of him that weren't the most beautiful. Or take another example. Maybe who, who, who lives, who's lived the most beautiful life in, in your own sphere? I mean, your own mother or something like that? Someone like that? Beautiful person, but of course still having flaws. Jesus, is the point, was infinitely more beautiful. You talk about beauty of a person that we can kind of capture and see glimpses of, glimpses of here. Jesus was infinitely beautiful with no blemish. And, and yet the gospel is he emptied himself and died a gruesome death, taking the curse of sin on the cross is how the Bible says it. And if you think about what this means is if the, the old ark had been sprinkled with blood over time and that had been caked over, you know, basically a blood from a bull for, a sin, for a sins of a people on a given year, Jesus on the cross spilled his own blood for the sins of all people who would ever receive him throughout all generations. Which means if the Ark of the Covenant had gotten this beautiful thing had become ugly, Jesus became infinitely more ugly, even as he was perfectly beautiful. But that is the gospel. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. He became ugly that we might become beautiful in him. 
That is the beauty that we see, that we gaze upon most fully in the temple. Gazing on God's beauty in the temple is therefore then meditating on what Jesus did for us on the cross, letting the gospel sink into our hearts more deeply. Um, there's nothing more beautiful than that. And you know, when it comes to suffering, it comes to facing hardship, there's nothing more helpful for that because that's basically saying, with a stamp of like authority on top of it, Jesus suffered so that we might not ever suffer again. We will suffer in this life, but it's temporary. It's a short stop until you will be lifted up in Him if you receive Him. That you will be exalted, as the, as the writer uh, puts it here. Um, I love this about the Bible. You've heard me say this if you've, you've come here over, over, over time. The, the Bible has no interest in saying, you know what, when it comes to suffering, let's just pretend it's not there. <laughs> you know, just suck it up. You know, turn, turn that frown upside down when it comes to suffering. Like, come on. The Bible is about suffering. As much as our culture says, you know what, let's just pretend it's not there, or if it happens, all oh, it sucks for you. The Bible is saying God meets us in our suffering. Actually, he suffered so that we don't have to suffer in the end. Um, that's the beauty of Jesus. The one who didn't deserve it did it for us who are not deserving. And so whatever we face, you can know that God loves you. He's got his beauty. What's his beauty? Zacchaeus, come down from that tree. I must come over. Put your name in there. He loves you. He cares for you. And he wants to walk with you through whatever you're facing. And by the way, he wants to, through you, help others walk in suffering. Seeing him, seeing that they are not, they cannot just be supported during times of suffering, but more than adequately supported uh, with his love. In this life, we will experience suffering, but we will also, verse 13, experience some, uh, some, uh, some of it will not be suffering. He says, I remain confident. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, but in the next life, it will be perfect with him when every tear will be wiped away and all suffering will cease. If there's one thing, David says, somebody who knew suffering, somebody who had some credibility, someone who understand intimately the heart and mind of God, he said, if there's one thing that you're going to, if, if you can hold on to it, if you could, if you could seek after it, that'll help you weather any storm, it's to gaze upon God's beauty, to seek his face. Let's pray.